Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. This is the News Items podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, bringing you news items that we think are interesting, important, or both. It's Tuesday, April 27th. As usual, we'll start with two important science and tech headlines, and then we'll get into the news items. What caught your eye today? Lumber prices are through the roof, so let's start there. I'm also interested in a Vice story about the national ammunition shortage that has also sent prices skyrocketing. And we'll talk about France, a recent terrorist attack there, and a borderline call for mutiny from 20 retired generals. That has tensions high ahead of next year's presidential election. After that, we'll take a breather. And when we come back, we can dive into the latest with the California recall. All right, let's start with the science and tech headlines. First, in India, a second wave of COVID-19 continues to ravage the subcontinent. We're seeing hundreds of thousands of new cases every day, more than in any country since the start of the pandemic. Likely factors behind the crisis include coronavirus variants and the obvious difficulties of proper social distancing. Last week, John, we also talked about the Kumela Festival, a pilgrimage that turned into a super spreader event. The U.S., U.K., Germany, and others have promised to send oxygen, ventilators, and PPE. This is potentially the biggest story of COVID so far. Mm -hmm. I got an email this morning from a consultant to the WHO who told me that their belief is that it's not 300,000 cases a day, it's 5 million cases a day. What explains that underreporting to such a dramatic extent? Why? My very question. The answer has not been forthcoming. My response to that email was 5 million, all caps, a day, question mark. His response was 5 million, Mm -hmm. all caps, per day. Uh The truth of the matter is, if you read the India Times, which I was (laughs) found myself doing this morning at around 2, there are literally hundreds of thousands and probably millions of people who won't come out of their homes Uh in India because they're terrified that they'll get the disease. Mm -hmm. We didn't even see that in Wuhan. And, you know, that city was locked down. This is the single scariest piece of information that I've received. Really? This is a counter-narrative of epic proportions. So we'll see. Epic proportions. You can say that again. Well, let's move on to some better news. Researchers at the University of Delaware have published findings on how to turn plastics into fuel. It's a refinery in reverse, one of the study's authors told the tech site Inverse. The method is to basically cook the plastics under high pressure alongside a combination of platinum and the mineral zeolite. These act as a catalyst to turn, for example, 300 small bottles into a gallon of gasoline. Different ratios of platinum and zeolite can lead to diesel or jet fuel instead. This could be big not just as a new source of fuel, but as a way to get rid of millions of tons of plastic waste. The study was published in the journal Science Advances. John, how much plastic does the Ellis household throw away these days? Oh, none. You know, (laughs) 100% eco at Ellis World. I'm surprised. Good for you. Sadly, that's not true. (laughs) What, you you would kid with me on something? Well, I'm so so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, if you're flying over the Pacific Ocean, you can look down and see essentially a gigantic plastic island the size of Texas, okay? Uh And one of the urgent questions facing 
people of this earth is how do you get rid of this stuff because it is with us forever unless we can figure out how to do that. And so this is very good news. Yeah, reverse feedstock, wave of the future. That is exciting. All right, let's get to the news items. First up, lumber prices are skyrocketing. According to Reuters, they've reached record highs and are up more than 300% year on year. Some of the factors behind the price hikes include diminished sawmill capacity and, most important, an increased appetite for renovation and home building that has led to record prices for lumber futures. Rebecca, because you are the mistress of the global market of things, can you tell us about what's going on with lumber? Well, you know, you said it. Since the onset of the pandemic, people have been stuck at home. This has created a massive impetus and demand for home improvement projects because people see what they'd like to change in their house and or new home starts. There's an appetite for space in the wake of mass lockdowns in the pandemic. People want fresh air. That's created demand for real estate. Interest rates are low historically still. There's, you know, the sudden bump in housing demand. Again, that creates demand for lumber. So, I mean, there's been multiple demand drivers over the past year that the pandemic has been going on. And there have been, as we've talked about many times here on the podcast, supply chain disruptions. So there's limited capacity for sawmills to process lumber, limited opportunities to transport it due to transportation backlogs. And when you combine that with an uptick in demand, such as we've seen over the past several months, you have a recipe for a massive bull market driven by shortages in lumber. So prices are high and expected to go higher. So my theory that it's all a vast Canadian conspiracy is not true. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. This could be, what do you think this is like stealth Canadian financial engineering? My view is that they all got together, you know, the lumber folks in Canada got together and, yep. you know, formed a cabal and said, look, <laughs> the price of this thing keeps going up, so we'll produce less and less of it. And that way, will be richer and richer, but maybe that's not true. Interestingly, you're also seeing a spillover in this in the price effect on substitutes for plywood. For example, plywood is obviously the premium product used in home building, but you are also seeing record prices in OSB that is oriented strand board. It's a cheaper stand-in for plywood that's typically used on housing floors and on walls. OSB prices set a record of $999 per 1,000 square feet in March of last year and set a new record of $1,500 per 1,000 square feet earlier this month. So anything home building related, if it has to do with, you know, something you can nail in place to create shelter, you're seeing a massive bull market in that commodity at present. It really only ends in, until interest rates spike and home loans and home improvement loans go go down, Yeah. Right? Well, Bloomberg had an interesting story. They they offered, as an illustrative anecdote, a situation in which one lumberyard was reported as having sold inventory to a distributor. Usually that uh, supply chain moves in the opposite direction, that distributors are selling to lumberyards. But there's been such a scramble to find uh, lumber anywhere, anyhow, that it's been going the opposite direction. Some home builders have actually had to cancel projects due to an inability to uh, access supplies. So we may see some demand come out of the market as people have to cancel or postpone projects until supply chain kinks are worked out, so to speak. It's an amazing story. Normally, it's a boring market, you know? Normally, it's a dull as, you know, I mean, watching paint dry on plywood time market. There you go. <laughs> but suddenly, it's gotten interesting. Sudden movement. Well, we'll uh, keep our eye on it. Yeah. Our next item comes from France, where a suspected terrorist attack has inevitably become a political football ahead of next year's presidential election. Last Friday, a Tunisian man stabbed a policewoman to death before being shot dead himself. 
This has become fuel for right-wing candidate Marine Le Pen's message of mass deportation for undocumented residents and a struggle against quote-unquote Islamism. And last week, before this attack, 20 retired generals wrote an open letter warning of a military takeover by their active-duty counterparts, civil war, and thousands of deaths if Macron fails to stop this Islamism. Le Pen initially lent them her support, but has done some backpedaling since. France seems to be tearing apart at the seams. John, what do you make of Marine Le Pen's chances in the upcoming elections? Well, in the past, we've always sort of written her off as a candidate with a ceiling, Mm -hmm. never able to get to 50% and really never able to get that close to 50%. Mm -hmm. She has managed, I think, fairly effectively to paint herself less as an extreme right-wing candidate and more as a populist-slash-nationalist candidate and thus has increased her poll ratings to the point where now she and Macron are running essentially even. Macron, on the other hand, has a particular problem on the left, which Mm -hmm. would ordinarily rally to his cause and forestall or make impossible the election of Le Pen as France's next president. But she has running room in the rurals, and she Mm -hmm. has running room in the north. So that makes her even more formidable than the tie in the polling would suggest. Now, some of what has put a ceiling on Marine Le Pen's uh, popular support uh, to date has been the association with her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, and the Front National, which was an anti-Semitic ultra-right-wing party. Marine Le Pen has rebranded the party into Rassemblement National, which is, as you mentioned, a sort of nationalist populist party. The FT article that you linked to in News Items today quotes uh, research from Ipsos that has found 30% of French voters in the 25 to 34-year age group are ready to vote for Marine Le Pen. That's up from 23% in 2017. Does her popularity with younger age groups who may not have a vivid memory of her father's platform, does that does that create a political danger in France? Yeah, I mean, I think among younger voters, the memory of Marine Le Pen's father is distant, if not disappeared. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was disqualifying for years. That's what really held her back. I think she has been successful in the rebranding, but this would not be occurring if Macron was a stronger candidate. And Mm -hmm. Macron has suffered, I guess is the word, uh, from the terrorist attacks, from the Yellow Vest uprising, from the mishandling of the uh, coronavirus response. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of time between then and now, obviously, all the normal caveats apply. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've been looking at French elections since I, you know, worked at the NBC News election unit long yeah. ago, and uh, this one feels different. It really, really. Does. So, where do you put the odds of Marie Le Pen as a president of the République? I'll be surprised if she wins, but mm-hmm. unlike in the past, I wouldn't be stunned. It's going to be a nail biter. That's yeah, for sure. It will be. I don't know what's the French for nail biter. I don't know. Nail biter. <laughs> Okay. All right, let's move on. Since the onset of COVID, we've cycled through a number of shortages. Toilet paper, paper towels in my household, beans, hand sanitizer, flour, just to name a few. We can now add ammunition to that list. Last year, Americans started buying guns in unprecedented numbers. 
Between March and September of 2020, gun sales jumped 91% year over year. Since then, demand has continued to surge. Americans bought more guns this past January than in any month since those numbers started getting tracked in 1998. Now, ammo is hard to find and getting more expensive. Rebecca, where are we in the great ammo crisis? I suppose whether it's a crisis depends on where you where you sit on the political aisle. But it is clear that there was a big spike in uh, gun purchases from March to September 2020. You mentioned 91% year over year. That is 15.1 million guns in need of ammunition. So there's obviously supply chain issues. You know, we talked about lumber. We talked about other commodities. Ammunition is another one of those items that's been hit by global supply chain hiccups. Gun distribution has been considered a non-essential business in most states. Right. Yeah, it's considered a non-essential business. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's been a backlog of ammunition that's expected to persist for at least a year. Yeah. What you see is this being reflected in prices of bullets. Before the shortage, a box of 59-millimeter rounds might have gone for $9.99. Today, a 50-round box of 9mm uh, bullets would go for $35. That's a significant price increase. It does beg the question, why does anybody need this much ammunition? I think this is fairly common knowledge that, that every time there's a mass shooting, there is an assumption among liberal gun law adherents that there will be a crackdown on gun ownership. And so there is a rush to buy guns and ammo after something like that happens. You had the aggravating factor of the election and concern that a Biden victory would lead to a crackdown on gun laws and gun ownership or an increase in background checks, for example. So that may have created panic buying. I mean, one thing that gun companies and the NRA are very good at is having people imagine that Joe Biden is going to come into their home and take away their rifles and their handguns and stuff. They sell fear pretty effectively, but the combination of the riots, mm -hmm. the Capitol riots and the Biden inauguration, I think, probably added a little octane to that fuel. Now, we should mention that the market background for the ammo shortage and the price, the price trends, et cetera, comes from a report in Vice that you linked to in news items today. USA Today offers some additional color on the demographics behind gun ownership. Over 5 million people last year were first-time gun buyers. So this rush to buy guns and ammo in 2020 wasn't just a preserve of traditional gun adherents and traditional gun owners. There's a significant number of new buyers. Uh, and CNN reported a sharp rise in sales to Black Americans and to women. Yeah. That was interesting yeah. to learn. Of all the stories I did not expect to read this year or last year or the yeah. year before, is yeah. that we would literally run out of ammunition. Yeah. All right. We're done with guns and ammo. Let's go to our break, and we'll be back to talk about the recall election in the great state of California. Welcome back to News Items. The effort to recall California Governor Gavin Newsom has taken a giant step forward. Yesterday, state officials confirmed that organizers submitted over 1.6 million verified signatures, more than enough to trigger a recall election. There are still a few steps before the petition is officially certified, and voters who signed the petition are allowed to rescind their signature. But it's likely that California voters will go to the polls sometime this year to decide whether to unseat a sitting governor and pick his potential replacement. The last and only time this happened, California replaced Gray Davis with Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
There's a lot to unpack, but John, can you start by explaining how California got to this position in the first place? I mean, the catalyst for the recall movement was the mishandling of the COVID crisis and what a lot of people in sort of non-democratic California felt was government overreach, shutting down their businesses from their point of view, ruining their economic prospects, at least for the near term. So a combination of what was viewed as overreach and mishandling of the pandemic more generally led to a kind of grassroots uprising. I don't think when it started amongst the organizers, I don't think they really thought they could get it done, but it snowballed quickly. And, you know, it's a real thing. John, how does a recall election work? What would actually be on the ballot in this case? A recall referendum is two parts. Okay. Question one is, do you want to remove Gavin Newsom or not? In the event that it's no, you don't want to remove him, then that's it. Game over. Uh, He's not recalled. He's still the governor. Life goes on. If the answer is yes, we do want to remove him, then by law, Mr. Newsom is no longer the governor and -hmm. he's no longer a candidate for governor. So you go to the second question, which is, who do you want to be governor? Uh And on that list right now are a number of Republicans, but I think we can anticipate that there will be an oddball collection of, Uh you know, self-financing billionaires. Caitlyn Jenner is in there, some wacky Hollywood person probably. And for the Democrats, they have to choose between being loyal to Newsom and not showing any crack in their support for Newsom. Uh But if he's in fact recalled, they wouldn't have a candidate unless they have a candidate. So that's the tricky uh, wicket at the moment for the Democrats is should they field a candidate in the event that Newsom is recalled? If they do, then they'll almost certainly win the, quote, gubernatorial election. If they don't and Newsom is recalled, then they're going to have a Republican governor in all likelihood. Now, the LA Times article that you linked to in news items, I thought this was interesting, mentioned that Newsom's actions with respect to COVID being spotted at a restaurant, et cetera, that was politically disastrous for him, right? But today, California's COVID case rate is the lowest of any any state in the United States. Its schools are quickly approaching reopening, and the state could be on the receiving end of a $15 billion tax revenue windfall. Do you think any of this will work in Newsom's favor? I mean, oh, is, absolutely. It's all forgotten? Okay. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's <laughs> His the best. fortunes it's, have turned, right? It's the best possible news for him. I mean, if, yeah. if the pandemic, quote, disaster, end quote, you know, marched on, yeah. you know, his prospects for surviving the rep, the recall referendum would obviously diminish. But yeah. California is now supposedly number one in the nation. That's very good news for him. And most people, if you talk to people in California politics, most of them expect that Newsom will survive this challenge comfortably, you know, 10 percentage points or more. Mm -hmm. One friend of mine out there who does polling in California told me that he thought Newsom would win 60-40. That's the likeliest outcome. But the one thing that we've learned from the COVID pandemic is that it takes politics into weird places. Yeah. And California is volatile enough and sort of crazy enough that it could take us to some weird places. 
Yeah, speaking of unexpected places, I don't know if I'll say weird places. Uh, you, we mentioned in the intro that uh, the last time California unseated a, a governor was when Gray Davis was replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was a Republican, but I think it's fair to say he was a sort of charismatic Republican, a, a Republican of a different type, shall we say. Now we see Caitlyn Jenner expressing an interest in possibly running as a Republican gubernatorial candidate. How likely is it that California could see a Trump-style Republican in office, as opposed to these kind of celebrity quasi-Republicans, if you want to call them that? Well, this actually sets up pretty well for former President Trump, Mm -hmm. because you have multiple uh, Republican candidates at the moment. Trump has a strong constituency in California, despite, I mean, he didn't spend a dime in California in 2020, and he got 36% of the vote, which is pretty good. But the thing that Trump can do is he can say, okay, Rebecca Darst is my candidate. Mm -hmm. And he endorses Rebecca Darst, and then he says to his, quote, base, end quote, don't support the others. Make sure that we only have one candidate. That's the Republican candidate. Everybody get behind my candidate. That's the deal. Mm -hmm. And if Trump does that, he will clear the field for whoever that Republican candidate is that he chooses. Because if the other candidates keep running, they're going to earn the enmity of Trump's base, which they don't want to do. Their fundraising is going to dry up. It's just going to put them crosswise with constituencies that they need in the future of their political lives. So Mm -hmm. Trump can clear the field, assume for the sake of argument that Newsom is recalled. So now you go to the second question, who is your choice? If you have a Democrat there, if you have a couple of independents, a wealthy businessman, et cetera, and you have one Republican candidate that the Mm -hmm. Republicans all agree is their candidate, you don't need 50% in a gubernatorial election after a recall. Schwarzenegger won with a plurality, 48.6 or 49, let's call it. So near a majority. But in this uh, scenario, a Republican could win with as little as 33% or even 30%. So it's an opportunity, assuming that others get in on the liberal side or the Democratic side or whatever, it's a real opportunity for Trump to clear the field and lend his weight and financial uh, support to a Republican candidate. And if that Republican candidate gets, you know, 38 percent of the vote or something, Mm -hmm. roughly what Trump got the last time, that could win. Ah. And that would be a revolution in California politics, to say the least. Well, interesting situation to watch in the state of California. I know news items will be on it. Yes, indeed. I, I'm old enough to remember Gray, the aptly named Gray <laughs> Davis, getting tossed out. And, uh, you know, the moment that Schwarzenegger was elected, he became a national figure. So yeah. in the event that Newsom is replaced by anybody, Democrat, Independent, or Republican, that person becomes instantly a national political figure. So I guess that's it from us today. For more on the uh, the California recall, developments in COVID, the latest in science and tech, you got to subscribe to News Items. Get the premium version. You can find it by Googling News Items Substack John Ellis. It'll take you there. For those of you who would like to learn more about the global market of things, including what we just talked about, lumber, please 
do visit Rebecca's site, investableuniverse.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Billy Gardella, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news. See you then.